Hi, Stella. Hiya, Sasha. Well, isn't this, wasn't that an amazing conversation we've just had with Eitan Haim? Doctor. Yeah. We, we really, we're going to keep this intro really short. We just want to let Dr. Haim tell you his story. He is a whistleblower from Texas who um, kind of uncovered that Texas Children's Hospital, the biggest children's hospital in the world, had put out a statement saying they were shutting down their gender program and they continued to operate. And the stories that he shares are quite shocking. He was then for whistleblowing, which is a protected category. He was then investigated by the federal government. And we get into so much about medical ethics and the progress of medicine and the basic premise underlying gender affirming care and how he kind of became aware of this whole thing in the first place. It was really remarkable. Yeah, I loved this interview. I loved talking with him. It was really, really interesting, very moving. Felt like somebody new coming into, it's almost new arrivals of people starting to talk about gender. And it was really, really informative for me. Really, really interesting. So I'll read his bio and then we'll let you listen. Yeah. So Dr. Eitan Heim is the founder of Alliance for Medical Ethics, an organization founded to promote freedom of thought and truth in medicine regarding important ethical issues such as sex change procedures on minors and COVID-19 policy. Dr. Heim is a general surgeon practicing in Texas and recently completed his residency in general surgery at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. During this time, he worked at the country's most prestigious teaching hospitals, including Bentob County Hospital. Texas Children's, and MD Anderson Cancer Center. He received multiple awards and distinctions for his professionalism and dedication to teaching. Dr. Haim attended medical school at Florida Atlantic College of Medicine, where he was inducted into the Alpha Omega Alpha and Gold Humanism Society. Prior to medical school, he graduated cum laude from the University of South Florida and obtained a master's in neuroscience and aging from the University of South Florida College of Medicine, during which time he published multiple peer-reviewed publications about his research into the physiology of ALS and strokes. In October, Dr. Heim will be starting his general surgery practice outside of Dallas at Hunt Regional Medical Center in Greenville, Texas. So please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Eitan Heim. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. And this is Gender, A Wider Lens, a podcast dedicated to the shifting concepts around gender in our contemporary culture. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we seek to open up the discourse around this hot-button issue. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella, and welcome, Aton. We're so glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really good. I was so excited when I first heard about a surgeon who was a whistleblower because I was like texting Sasha, surgeon, we've never <laughs> had a surgeon. We've got to get a surgeon because of all the many, many stories we hear about gender affirming care, like what's happening in the surgery rooms is, is arguably the most horrifying. And I've always found it interesting that where are the surgeons? Where, you know, we get so many psychotherapists contacting us, no obvious, for obvious reasons. We don't get surgeons. We get teachers, we get lawyers, Mm -hmm. we get all sorts of professions, but surgeons don't arise. So you're a rare breed. Yeah, it's a a privilege to be on. 
Yes, yeah, surgeons were a unique breed. You know, we tend to stick to ourselves. You know, um, you know, try to protect our own and circle the wagons whenever things happen. But you know, right. in a situation like this, it's an absolute necessity to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know that you've shared kind of the details of your story, your um, whistleblowing on the hospital that was continuing to perform medical procedures that had been banned in Texas in September. And then the, the investigation being under investigation by the federal government. And we're happy to have you kind of share a little bit of that story. But we would love to dig into some other kind of details that, that we haven't heard you explore yet in these interviews because I think they're really interesting and important. So we tend to work chronologically around here. So we'll, we'll go backwards and we'll ask, mm -hmm. before this whole thing happened at Texas Children's Hospital, had you been following the kind of news around youth gender dysphoria or was this on your radar? How did you kind of first learn about this entire thing? You know, I, I remember before 2020, I heard that with that show, I Am Jazz, but you kind of oh, think yeah. it's like this, it's this fringe element in medicine that is limited to these very small areas. So you don't, you know, you only think about it. I had never put much thought into it. It was only after COVID where you had this inversion of our cultural and societal institutions that it became more apparent, right? Where, and by inversion, I mean like, you had the institutions of medicine. Instead of producing health, they produced sickness. The institutions of education, instead of educating kids, they made them dumber, right? And then after COVID, it seemed that because of this embrace of ideology and censorship, it laid the groundwork for the proliferation of the gender ideology in the most prestigious medical centers in our country. So it was like 2021, 2022 that lives at TikTok really, you know, became more prominent where you would see these videos of these bubbly young doctors talking about gender affirming hysterectomies and mastectomies for like 14, 15, 16 year old kids. And it really takes a long time to, to acknowledge that this is real. Because as a surgeon, you could never imagine taking a child to the operating room and putting them under the knife and doing something like that. So, you know, so it's just so horrifying that you don't even think it's real. But it, yeah, so you definitely don't think it's happening in your state. You think it will happen in California and Washington, but definitely not in Texas. And then once I found out it was happening not only in Texas at my hospital, but also at my hospital. You know, it was it was a, a unbelievable situation to be in. So so am I correct, Aton, in thinking that generally speaking, the process of, quote, gender affirming care was quite horrifying to you when you first learned about it and started thinking about it. And then you realized it was happening in your hospital. And I just want to understand where the piece about the bands came in because this mm -hmm. seems really key so yeah. is that correct that you were already kind of horrified by the idea of operating on children like that was already very weird to you yeah yeah and it's um so when i learned that it was happening at texas children's hospital this was like mid 2022 because i worked at texas children's i was a surgical resident at baylor college of medicine 
And we would work at all these different hospitals. And Texas Children's was one of the ones where we would spend the most time at. So people would come up to me and tell me that, you know, they had just implanted this puberty blocking device in some 11, 12-year-old girl with gender dysphoria who had all these psychiatric issues that were being unaddressed and they were horrified. So I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. But I had found out that a few months before in March of 2022, the hospital had unequivocally released a statement saying they were shutting down the program because of the legal risks. And that's important. They said they were shutting down the program because of the legal risks. And that came from like a few weeks before that, the attorney general of Texas had released an opinion saying this could be investigated as child abuse. So in order to protect, you know, the hospital's employees, the hospital said, we're shutting it down, right? So they're giving the outward appearance that the program no longer exists. But I worked at the hospital. I did surgery there. You know, I knew the people who were doing it. They told me about it. But not only did the hospital continue the program, right? They expanded it into this multidisciplinary clinic. You had members of the transgender uh, uh, program who talked about how they were concealing it from governing medical authorities a few months later. There was a social worker who said that um, uh, she wouldn't write down consults. She would call them in in order to not have a paper trail. <laughs> yeah. By the she way, admitted, said that. she admitted this on a Zoom call with like 150 medical students. Seven months after, in January 2023, after this statement, the directors of the transgender program were given the opportunity to speak at the hospital's most prestigious lecture series, the Grand Rounds, where they mm-hmm. were teaching primary care doctors like how to ask about gender identity behind the backs of the parents. It's like so when I see this happening, it's like um, you can't believe it's real that the biggest children's hospital in the world is lying about this program. So it's like, well, I had to do something about it. Oh, my I have God. A re- <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah. is actually way more crazy than Whoa. I even realized. Yeah. Did you go to yeah. these grand? Did you go to the grand rounds just to hear what yeah. they were saying? Like, tell me, what, what were you we hearing recorded, in there? We recorded the grand rounds lecture. Yeah, it was online. It's still online. Yeah. What were some of the most shocking things you heard there? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the whole thing was shocking. So first of all, supposedly, you know, so if you go, if you went to Texas Children's Hospital's website, there was no indication the program existed. And that's important because the, even the smallest, uh, like the rarest diseases have an entire website, right? Where the, parents can go meet, you know, find out who the doctors are, schedule a clinic appointment, right? Uh, There was no mention online of this program existing. So, uh, uh, so that was one thing that was crazy. But during this lecture, you know, they talked about how puberty blockers are reversible, you know, in the beginning, but then a couple slides down, they talked about how you would have to consent patients to, to all these, uh, uh, that they would have to know about these fertility preserving options, like doing surgery yeah. to preserve the fertility of, of boys, like, uh, uh, or for women. And it's like, well, if it's reversible, how is it that you have to, uh, preserve, preserve their fertility, fertility, right? It's like those two are mutually exclusive. They ca- cannot exist 
in the same clinical um, milieu, right? Yeah. So it's um, but then they were using studies uh, to support their assertions that are just completely fraudulent, right? You see these coming from Jack Turbin. I mean, it's like you take one look at the study, you look at all the confounding variables in the population groups. You know, there's no way to make the conclusions from what they're putting out there. And, you know, I knew I had a responsibility to do something because when we take an oath as a doctor to do no harm, that not only exists in the operating room or, or, or your clinic, right? It exists outside of that. Like you have mm-hmm. to uphold these principles in your profession when you see something going wrong. So after that, you know, I, I started reaching out to journalists and it took me months and months to get a hold of, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of journalists who they didn't, they either didn't believe it or they were like, oh, who's like this peasant who like has a story that he just completely blew me off. Yeah, because you're just a resident at that, well, just a resident. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am curious though, because I'm from Houston, so I know Texas oh, Children's. Really? Yeah, it's an incredibly, I mean, people come to Texas, generally speaking, for medical care from all around the world because these are such amazing hospitals between MD it's Anderson. Most, yeah, it's the most amazing hospital I've ever worked at. The most amazing hospital in the oh. world. Really. Like, yeah. It's, it truly is. Um, yeah. Like, so, the um, surgeries they do, is, are they're amazing. Yeah, and so, so I am curious about, like, Coming from such a reputable hospital with these weird, like secret grand rounds meetings. And I mean, not secret ish, but in terms of like public visibility, not, mm-hmm. did you, did you think, okay, somebody in leadership is maybe like being kept out of the loop here. Like, did you go to anybody else within Texas children's? Cause it seems like you and your other colleagues were shocked about these procedures, feeling uncomfortable about implanting the puberty blocking port. Like, did you go to anybody else within the hospital to try and like sound the alarm? No, absolutely not. Because it was okay. the leadership who were complicit in the cover up. It was them. Yeah, because, you know, so, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. Because, okay. Okay. So after our story came out on May, so I finally got a hold of Chris Rufo in mid May. I began reaching out to journalists like, January 2023, and uh, I got a hold of Chris Rufo in May, uh, uh, mid-May, and it was it was perfect timing because the vote in Texas in the Texas Senate on SB 14 was on May 17th, which was going to ban these uh, uh, hormone-related interventions in kids. So yeah. our story comes out the day before that vote, and because it came out the day before. There was bipartisan bipartisan support for the passage of the bill the next day. So the conduct we had exposed was voted to become illegal within 24 hours by the Texas So it wasn't illegal yet when you were observing it, but it was contraindicated to the statement letter that the hospital produced saying we're shutting this program down. So I just want to get the details correct. Yeah, well, well... you know, I would I would posit I would I would propose that it's been illegal all along because it's child abuse, right? To do this to children, to to um, uh, irreversibly change their physiology for something that for you know to treat a problem of the mind with the solution of the body, 
No, we, have, we totally agree. We totally agree. I mean, yeah, that's kind of what our was, whole work is about. But I want to just get these because these legal nuances, I think, are mm-hmm. really important. So the hospital was kind of violating its own statement about exactly. shutting down the program. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it was codified. You could say it was made unequivocal that it was illegal on May 17th. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They were in almost a gray area before that, but everybody knew what, yeah, get it. Exactly, yeah, but, and then, um, so uh, about a week and a half after that, after our story came out, uh, you know, more whistleblowers came out, you know, who had worked with these doctors and talked about how it was horrifying to see how these kids were being put on, like, hormones and blockers after, like, a 30-minute meeting while everything else was being ignored. But the CEO of the hospital, right, mm-hmm. about maybe 10 days later, had released, uh, sent out an email to all the hospital staff saying that he was uh, so disappointed that they have to shut down this program that's so important that they're going to do everything they can to just ship these kids out to other states. So they knew about it, right, of course. To have a lecture at the Grand Rounds, the leadership has to know about it. Yeah. Because when you're giving those lectures, it's an a hospital-wide priority to hmm. to uh, to be chosen to give these lectures. Okay. Yeah. Wow, there's so much to talk about here. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I even know, know where, where to start. Um, yeah, uh, and, and then of course, uh, you know, like what we had exposed was voters become illegal within 24 hours, and then federal agents show up to my door four weeks later on the day of my graduation, the most important day of my life, saying I'm the one under criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. And what happened? <laughs> well, I was still anonymous at the, at the time, right? Um, so I was the anonymous whistleblower in this story. And this was towards the end of my surgical training. And... Uh, June 23rd was the day of my graduation. And it's important for people to understand that you make so many sacrifices during those five years of training. You miss so many life events, yeah. uh, time with your family, like, you know, birth of your nieces and, you know, things you'll never be able to get back. And, but, but you have this, this privilege of being a surgeon. And it means so much that the day you graduate is a really, really big deal. So your family's in town. It's, it's a, it's a great thing. So it was like a Friday, you know, early afternoon around 11, 12. And, um, you know, my wife and I are getting ready. And all of a sudden I get an aggressive knock on the door and I shuffle over and, you know, I'm wearing some stupid t-shirts and ratty shorts from college. I open the door standing outside are two federal agents with health and human services. And they show me their badges and tell me they're investigating a case regarding medical records. And I knew exactly what it was about. They were there to instill fear and to intimidate me, right? But of course, you know, like you kind of freak out at that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So I invite them in and we sit down and, you know, they set up a little tripod because they want to interview me. But luckily my wife, she's a brilliant, she's an attorney. She had come out and we both look at each other and we go back to our room. And we closed door and, and we're like, you know what? Yeah, this is a bad idea. We should not toss them without an attorney present. That's a constitutional right. 
Yeah. We go out there and we tell them that and they say, okay, no problem. But they hand me a target letter. A target letter is a piece of paper, right, that said I was uh, a potential target of a criminal investigation and it was signed by an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Texas. So a couple minutes after that door closed, or after the door opened, the door was closed and, you know, we realized that from that moment on, you know, our life was going to be permanently changed. Yeah. And we had a choice, like, do we, do we just, you know, concede Fold. to what these people want, right? Like, do we just admit to something that never happened just so these people can get off our back? Like, do we just kind of uh, 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 bend the knee or do we fight? And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the answer was clear. We had to fight. There was no option. The the accusation or the the target letter indicated something about records. What was the what was the claim? I mean, what are they talking about regarding records? Yeah, yeah. and and that's the interesting thing is uh, you know because it, it what what are they possibly investigating? And what my attorneys had so over the next couple of months we undergo this process where we're communicating um, where my attorneys are communicating with them. Yeah. And they had just released a statement to Congress outlining the profound misconduct of this prosecutor in this investigation. So she, they, so I'm just commenting on what my attorneys mm-hmm. had sent to Congress. She had sent this target letter and these agents to my apartment on the day of my graduation without ever reviewing the evidence. Right. So she didn't even know what she was investigating. But they they sent this target letter any, anyway, right? And what this letter from my attorneys outlines is that they were just looking for something to get me on because they, you know, my my uh, it it's very clear that what they were trying to do is silence me as a whistleblower to indicate that if other doctors come out and and speak up in this way that the federal government's going to come after you, right? But were they saying that you had leaked confidential records or like, what was the claim? I know you, you're, of course, like the, the yeah, mechanism yeah. of this is intimidation, right? But I'm just trying to understand what yeah. the claim was. Yeah, they, they had uh, said that, you know, we had leaked individual names. But the good oh. thing is all the evidence is on Twitter. You can look at it yourself. There was Individual names of doctors, clinicians, or do you mean patients? No, no, no of patients. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but the good thing is, yeah, I mean, all the evidence is on Twitter for the whole world to see. And that's why for me, I mean, there's not, you know, I have nothing to be afraid of in this situation, right? Yeah. Because, you know, what we had exposed was voted to become illegal. This is one of the greatest scandals in modern medical history and we had exposed that the largest children's hospital in the world was lying about it oh my god right and the federal government wants to come after me to try to silence me and 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 even during this time they had threatened my wife right that was one of the first things because my wife was undergoing a federal background check because she was hired as a assistant u.s attorney in the northern district of texas and the prosecutor had said, well, she's not going to have any problems with her background check unless she becomes difficult, right? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, because, you know, my wife had um, uh, encouraged me to use my constitutional right to have an attorney mm-hmm. present whenever we talk to the government. Of course. So of somehow, course. somehow using your constitutional right is becoming difficult. Oh, my God. Wow. So if, 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 you know, it's important for people to understand, like, <laughs> if, if all this happens to you, right, you, you have no choice but to speak up and to fight back. Because what, what, could you, what, what world are you delivering your children into if you don't do something about this, right? Yeah. Like, if, if you, your ch- I want my children to grow up and become a doctor or become a surgeon but I want them that if they do the right thing, that the federal government is going to try to destroy their life. This cannot be allowed to happen. Yeah. You know, and we've talked with other whistleblowers on this show and something that we have made an effort to point out is that it's a protected category. Like if you become a whistleblower and you go through this kind of legal process, you should be protected. And so what's happening to you here is really, scary given that you should have that kind of legal protection as a whistleblower it's, i mean it sounds soviet yeah like, because it, it is like soviet. Some... yeah because it is soviet it's not i mean that's what it is it's i mean they knew exactly like and to think about health and human services is like this typically slow moving sclerotic organization. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know. You know, even even for like these other big cases, it takes six months, maybe a year to yeah. get a target letter. Maybe they give you a call or maybe put oh something in your mailbox. God. But they're sending like their federal goons to my apartment on the day of my graduation. And the reason on we the know day. this is because my wife works as a, a assistant US attorney in the Northern District of Texas. She does these kind of cases, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did so you get to, we, did you go to your graduation or did it throw it or? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is, um, so we, uh, right after everything happened, right. Um, you know, a couple of minutes go by and we're like, Oh my God, like this is crazy. Like, but right. we're going to have to fight. So we call Chris for Rufo and he picks up and we're like, Hey, Hey man, like, uh, um, this happened. And he's like, don't worry about it. Let me clear my schedule. Um, let me get back to you in a couple of minutes. So it's a testament to Christopher Rufo because this guy is the real deal. I mean, Wait, had you amazing. known him? Like, how'd you yeah, decide to reach out to, to Chris back Rufo? To that this is interesting. You, you told us it took you five months to go from looking for journalists in January until <laughs> yeah. you got to May and got to Christopher Rufo. So yeah. you'd already gone through this process of trying to get, which yeah. I find interesting. So, yeah, maybe tell us that and then go back to that day. And he cleared his schedule. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, well, so I would just I would just send out emails to people to like journalists. And like, how come doesn't... you didn't? How come the likes of us are? There's so many of us going listen to us, and I'm just th- stunned that it took you five months and none. Five months. Yeah. Yeah. Five months. I mean, like, We're like doing I, right, I, I was about to give up. I was about to give up, but then finally. And how come you didn't know all the different gender criticals, the gen specs, and the and the you know, do uh, no uh, harm? I'm telling you, I was I was so busy with my surgical residency that it was just like, you know, I I knew of a couple, and it was just like I would just send them emails, and that was it, you know. Yeah. And what did um, you know? You were just contacting between January and May. You were contacting just likely journalists. You didn't. Yeah. Think that there was a movement like of mainstream kind of journalists or um not like mainstream journalists okay because, i mean definitely not going to cnn or like fox yeah. news right yeah um, 
No, like, like, you know, like the alternative media. Well, okay. and, you know, I'm not going to, because, yeah. you know, okay. these organizations, they don't know who I am. It's reasonable. They have other priorities at times. So it's like, I'm not faulting anyone, you know, it's, it's I'm really just cool. thinking who else is trying to contact us? Oh, they, tons. You know, I'm telling you, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Um, really? that there are tons of people out there who have crazy stories who just are being ignored for sure. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Yeah. And so finally, so in you May, found you, Chris Rufo. How did yeah, you do so that? I did you write to of, him? Did you write I just to him? I sent him like a million emails. Yeah, I sent him a bunch <laughs> of emails. Just, yeah. I just kept on emailing. Yeah. And wow. then, um, yeah, yeah, just a bunch of emails. That's it. Okay. And then he finally so, answered. Yeah, and that was in May. And that was perfect yeah. time. That's before the story came out. And, you know, we, kept, we had kind of been in contact. Um, and then the reason... You know, another part of the story is that, like, in mid-June, before the feds came, Rufo had reached out to me, and he wanted to do, like, a story, like, a short story about, like, my opinions on this gender thing. And he would just, he he wrote the story in a way, this was a anonymous doctor, surgeon at a big academic medical center. And this was unrelated to the original story that came out in May. Okay. So he had released this narrative, this story in City Journal uh, on June 21st. So we had been in contact during that time. And um, it was funny because the name of the article was thrown to the wolves. But, uh, you know, I thought it might get like a little bit of interest. But the story got over like 10 million views in like Jesus. a day. Like it was like Elon Musk, J.K. Rowling, um, Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, Miranda Devine. Yeah. And that was, yeah, Stella that was me. Sasha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then that was that story was released June twenty first. It was two days later that uh, the feds came to my apartment. Wow! Right. Oh my so God. we had been in contact, um, you know, like mm -hmm. in during that time. And uh, so, like when I gave him a call, he probably thought it was just to talk about that article or something. But um, you know, I told him what happened, and then he puts me in touch with my attorney, Marcella Burke. Wow. And, you know, Marcella Burke, you know, it's important for people to know who she is because um, she's, she, she's this crazy lady, but in the best way possible. Yeah. We get on the phone with her and we find out, you know, she's this, she was a, a, a partner at this big prestigious law firm making like seven figures, but she quit because she didn't want to put pronouns in her bio. And she led wow. this exodus of other conservative Good attorneys yeah. to start her own firm like six months before. So she's like this, uh, you know, um, you know, strict Catholic, like rosary in one hand, middle finger in the other, bulldog <laughs> of an attorney. And after we talked to her, like she, uh, you know, we were like, this is the right person. This is who we need to have. And then after that, we're like, all right, well, what are we going to do on the day of my graduation? So we opened a bunch of champagne. We sat on our patio, blasted like Vietnam War music, you know, like like Jimi Hendrix, Creedence Clearwater, right, Rolling Stones, and and just plotted our war strategy. And then we went to my graduation and celebrated with wow. my resident and the people I train with. And yeah, wow, yeah. that's huge. I mean, I'd love to hear about as a surgeon, as a doctor who's taken this oath, what is it that you are celebrating now? Because obviously you see this as being a really 
momentous contribution to something. So in your words, I mean, of course, Stella and I have our own idea of how all this is going to unravel, but what do you think you're contributing to? What's the celebration yeah. about? Uh, and you mean like it's the day of my graduation or like just celebration in general? I get the sense that the popping of the champagne and stuff, like it was obviously about you graduating, oh, yeah. but I get the sense that it was also about this bigger picture thing that you're a part of now. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. Do you think that's accurate? Oh, you know, I actually never thought about it that way, but it's, oh. it's kind of true. It, it kind of was a celebration. Um, hmm. You know, it's, you know, that's actually really insightful. I, uh, yeah, that's, that's odd that it's a, well, I am a therapist, so <laughs> No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I, I would say, really, it was a crossroads where. Okay. Um, because before that, it with COVID and everything, and, and you have to stay silent in order to preserve your profession, oh, right? Yeah. You have you have this you have this false belief that you have to stay silent in order to preserve your profession. But that day, we decided that we would have to fight back in order to really save it, to save it for future generations. So when we had celebrated that day, I guess it was, in a sense, us kind of taking back this ability to live with dignity, right? We, we, we had resolved that we would not lie to ourselves, that we would not bend the knee. And maybe that was, that well, yeah, that's what we were celebrating. So, yeah. That's actually, that's, yeah. that's very profound. Yeah. Well, I you know, that that way. we know in this world that so many people are in a profession, in an agency, in a clinic, in a hospital where they have felt, and even in a family where they have felt like they're tiptoeing, walking on eggshells, having to keep their real thoughts quiet. And that is so soul crushing. So there's a real relief and like a joy that comes from saying, you know what, F it. Like, I'm going to say what I believe to be true and like consequences come as they may, but I'm going to speak in integrity and speak truth, like as best as I see it. And that, that's actually very empowering. Like, I think it's necessary for our mental health. Yeah, it's, it's so true because you, you realize that you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts. If when you, every single day you have to go into work and you have to live a lie, that will take its toll. But the moment you speak up, you defend yourself, you speak for what's true in, in the honor of your profession, you realize that this is the first time you're able to live with, with your dignity. And, and that means something so profound it, it's it's something that you can't really describe but it's so meaningful because you don't have to walk on eggshells you don't have to it's it's like you can actually do something to preserve your profession so that you can pass it on but really at the end of the day you have children who are being harmed and yeah. you have to make sure that that does not happen because if you took this oath as a surgeon as a doctor you have a responsibility to uphold that we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Genspect and Therapy First. Genspect is an international organization committed to fostering a healthy approach to sex and gender. The team and members of Genspect strive to promote high-quality, evidence-based care for gender non-conforming individuals. Genspect is pleased to offer a non-medicalized approach to gender with their recently published Gender Framework, and they continue to hold conferences around the world. 
Visit genspect.org to learn more. Therapy First is a non-profit worldwide professional association of mental health providers who view psychotherapy as the appropriate first-line treatment for gender dysphoria. Therapy First supports psychotherapists working with gender dysphoric youth and young adults and offers public education on mental health and psychotherapy. Visit therapyfirst.org to learn more. Now back to the show. Could you could you bring us back to when you first uh, realized that puberty blockers were being, you know, um, inserted? And could you tell us the mechanism? Because when I first heard about puberty blockers, number one, I thought they're a terrible idea. I just immediately intuitively thought, don't stop sexual development of children, please. But secondly, it took me some time before I realized I presumed it was a tablet. And I think most people do. Mm. And then I realized this is an actual, you know, it's an intervention that's more, more invasive than people realize. So one, when did you first hear about puberty blockers? And then when did you hear about puberty blockers in the hospital? And were surgeons actually saying it to you when you mentioned it earlier? Were they saying it in slight shock that they were doing it when they said, I've just you know, inserted it. Was there a general consensus around the surgeons? This is all a bit off the wall. Or was it a kind of remarkable intervention or, you know what I mean? What was, what, what is its kind of position Mm -hmm. among surgeons? If you follow me. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to add to the question. Also, just what is it? Because there's, there's a port or something. Can you just explain like, what is it? Yeah. So, um, so a period, so they can be administered in two different ways as an injection, which usually happens on a monthly basis, that, uh, you know, you have to go into a clinic and then they inject the, uh, the medication into you. And usually that's done on a monthly basis, or you have the drug delivery implant, which a kid is taken to the operating room and is placed under their skin. And the reason there's a difference between the two is there are certain children who don't tolerate it in the clinic, the injection. So if you have a child who might have psychiatric issues, who might be autistic, they're the ones who will be taken to the operating room because they're not able to tolerate it in the clinic. So already the people who we had identified who were being taken to the OR because of gender dysphoria to get these implants are already high risk. So, my experience came from, you know, I had put these blockers, uh, I had participated in surgeries, but, but it was for precocious puberty. It was for a different diagnosis. Children who had identifiable, measurable hormonal diseases. And we were implanting these devices as a means of treatment for the uh, very, very early onset of puberty, yeah. right? It was a pathological state. And the puberty blockers are being used to bring that child back to the normal physiological levels of hormones, right? But in the cases of gender dysphoria, when they're being used for that, when they're implanting a puberty blocking device, which will last for about nine months or, or a year, they are taking a kid who has a normal physiological hormone level and then putting them into a pathological state. And that's where they reside. And they say it's reversible, but you have to understand the way they're recommending it is in a way to not be reversible at all. Because the binary they're offering these kids 
is either affirmation or suicide. There's no in-between. There's no off-ramp. There's no way for this to be reversible because they're saying you have to commit to this for the rest of your life. You have to become a chronic medical patient. This is something I've really wanted to ask a, a medical professional who has experience with the precocious puberty thing, because in, in, in our work, that is often stated that this is reversible. And my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Aton, but my understanding is that when used in precocious puberty with a kid who's like seven or eight, and then you take them off the puberty blocker once they reach the maturational age when they're supposed to have puberty, then technically it's reversible. And I think that's why the gender-affirming doctors kind of use that phrase. But we also know statistically something like 98 or 99% of gender dysphoric kids who go on blockers go all the way with the hormones. So is that where that whole reversibility came from, from the research on precocious puberty? I've always been dying to ask somebody this. Yeah. You know, I'm, I mean, who really knows? Uh, because the way they're, they're recommending it is not reversible at all. And they know that. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I would be cautious about, venturing into their minds and their intentions or, or um, yeah, I'm so generous. No. Like I'm so generously trying <laughs> yeah. my best to read the, the best possible outcome or best possible yeah. intention. But it's like these blockers are reversible, kind of like dangerous street drugs are reversible. Like if you do it one time and never again for the rest of your life, then yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. the effects aren't so bad. But the reality is if you use dangerous street drugs, there's a very good chance you're going to become a chronic addict, right? Just like 95% of these kids who start start on puberty blockers for this reason will go on to, to take it for a very long time and to go on to cross-sex hormones. So like the people who are prescribing it, just like, like drugs, like on the street, they have no intention of making this a one-time thing, yeah. Yeah. right? They have every intention of making this a lifelong uh, That's such uh, a good point. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's but that you have to consider it in the way it's being prescribed. I remember I asked you about the surgeons. What is the general vibe in this hospital and other hospitals among the surgeons who are implementing mm-hmm. what I would consider extraordinarily radical and invasive surgery, or certainly he- heavy level intervention on very vulnerable children because the children you're dealing with the surgeons are dealing with are actually the most vulnerable. You know, I, I couldn't imagine. I, don't, I had never talked to him personally because it's, I, you know, I never had the opportunity. I think if I did, you know, I probably would ask him just to see it, what they would have to say. Yeah. Because it really is. It's as a surgeon, you realize that when you take someone to the operating room, it's such a great responsibility because there's so much risk involved, even for routine procedures. And when you do take them to the OR, you have to make sure that what you're doing is real, that you're actually solving a problem because you would never want to take someone for surgery unless there was going to be a real benefit or at least the possibility of a benefit to restore them to like their natural physiology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess the most insight I can get is, what these other surgeons say, like I've seen in other videos, like you have 
surgeons in Washington or at Massachusetts General or Vanderbilt or other places like that. And it seems like for them, you know, it's an ideology. They, they have lost sense of the meaning of medicine, where it's to restore and strengthen naturally occurring physiology. For them, they want to create something new. They want to play yeah. God. Yeah. And where the actual goal of medicine is to strengthen and, and restore what's already been created. You, you mentioned, too, that somebody came up to you and said, oh, my God, I just implanted a puberty blocker. I'm horrified. So it seems like there were some people who felt uncomfortable about it in the mm-hmm. residency program. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's important to know that when you're a resident, especially Texas Children's, it's one. I mean, for us, it was one of the busiest rotations because oh, yeah. we had a massive sense of sometimes, you know, 80, 90, 100 patients. We have to see a good portion of those. We have to do surgery all all day and then around in the evenings, see new consults. So, you know, we get we would get assigned to certain cases and you know, oftentimes you just kind of show up. You would you would read a little bit beforehand, but you're just you're hustling. Yeah. And they walk into the room and find out this is going on. They're like, Oh my god, this is happening. But mm-hmm. before and you know, so that's I wanna be charitable to those people. Of course, but really, of course, you have to, there has to be a responsibility as a surgeon. Like you, you cannot do this to children. I would never have been a part. I, you know, I, I couldn't, if I knew that this surgery was happening for that reason, I mean, you, you have a responsibility to try to um, really inform them that what they're undergoing is a very, very bad idea. You know, I'm thinking, Stella, about our friend Stephen Levine and the chain of trust. And Stephen Levine is a really brilliant psychiatrist who's been working in this area for decades. And he talks about how when you are in medical school, there's a chain of trust. And when you're in all of these trainings and these classes and you're doing your residency, the assumption is the instructions and guidance that you're getting from more experienced seasoned physicians is coming from a place of evidence and best practices. And so, you know, we think in a way like medical school students and residents and new doctors in training are also a kind of victim of this carelessness because, I mean, of course we trust our teachers and authority figures in positions of power. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like this is, like we get contacted all the time by therapists in training. Uh, people in medical school who are like, oh, my God, I can't believe what we're learning about gender. And they just so happen to be people that already had maybe like a seed of doubt about it. And they started looking into it. But I presume you're being bombarded by new information. Most residents are just like trying to absorb everything they're learning. Yeah. So, I mean, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, especially for residents who are training in medical students. You know, it's such a sad thing that the authority figures in the profession, the more senior surgeons, the people who run the academic institutions and the societies have stayed silent on this issue because everyone knows it's wrong and they have failed in upholding their oath by not speaking against it. And because the trainees, the residents and the medical students see the silence from the people who have the power, they feel completely powerless to stand against it. Oh yeah. But 
but it's a misconception because they do have the power to stand up. And especially for those who have the most on the line, when they speak out and do something about it, it has a profound impact in inspiring other people to do the same thing. And that's what we saw with our sword, because a few days after we had more whistleblowers of Texas children's come out. Wow. And you know, when you say, I've always wanted to know this, you know, when they say the oath or the responsibility, do you actually take an oath? You know, the way people talk yeah. about the hip, you do. Is it quite ceremonial? Is it quite serious? It's very ceremonial. Absolutely. Okay. Like when we start medical school, you have this very meaningful ceremony where you get your white coat and yeah. you sit in the front of this auditorium, all of your family is there, all of the, the faculty from the medical school is there. And, you know, when I started medical school in 2014, this was before all this, you know, extreme left wing ideology had just, it, it was, it, it was, it was starting to, to be integrated, but it was before it completely took over. And it was a very meaningful experience, right? Where you take an oath to do no harm, to protect patients from the diseases that afflict them, to, to restore them to a state where they can live their lives, to get them to a point where they are not tethered to the boundaries of a hospital and, and to use your judgment wisely and judiciously and prudently. And that's the goal, right? I mean, that's what medicine is because the whole point is to not have people come back. It's to Mm. take care of them one time and never see them again, you know? Like as a surgeon, you of course for people with chronic diseases or whatnot, but like even that, if you have someone with diabetes, lose weight, eat healthy, like yeah. get your A1C under control and then don't see me again, you know? And so you wear sorry to labor the point, but I have always wanted to know this. You wear you're given a white coat or you're wearing a white coat and is there a Bible or how is this oath kind of <laughs> the Merck <laughs> manual or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's well our our uh oath, we we hadn't as a class, we wrote our own oath, like our, uh, so, you know, it's, um, we had integrated like the do no harm. Like there were some parts that you had to include, but then there were other parts that we had written as well. Like wedding vows. Yeah, exactly. Like wedding vows. Well, I would say in many ways it is like a wedding because you get married to this principal. Wow. Uh, because it's not just a job, right? It's not just a job to be a doctor. It's like this, um, commitment until the day you die, right? That's really beautiful. And, you know, this is making me think, you know, you describe the, the purpose of medicine is to restore health to like, you called it like physiologically natural states or something like that. And, and I'm just kind of thinking about the way we have moved as a society and particularly in medicine. I'm, I'm certainly no expert, but I wonder if there's a kind of divergence right now in the philosophy where like the old school way is restoring natural health. And like the new way is some sort of like, to be hyperbolic, transhumanist, like super enhancement using technology to make people better than human. Like, cause that to me, gender medicine definitely has a flavor of that. Like maybe there's a bit of a God complex, you know, you see the endocrinologists that are like, wow, look what I can make this body do, you know? Is there some diverging philosophy in medicine where some people are not seeing it as restoration, but more like uber enhancement or something? 
Yes. And I think the reason that comes about is because there's this false belief that medicine is driven by science, which it's not driven by science. It's driven by morality. A doctor has to have a moral foundation in the basic human dignity of another individual. Because when it you have that basic moral foundation, you understand that you would never do to a patient something that would harm them in a way that would permanently alter their life, that they're deserving of health and, and a meaningful life. So whatever you do to them has to get them back in that direction, right? You use the science yeah. and the evidence to make a distinction between what treatments you're going to use for that specific problem. But medicine is not driven by science. It's driven by our, our basic acknowledgement of human dignity. The reason things are changing now, you have this divergence, is because doctors and scientists have lost the sense that the goal of our profession is the human in front of us, right? That it's not like about all these studies and because you can get a study to, to tell you anything. Oh, like I always say that, like you don't need like you don't need a randomized controlled trial to tell you not to drive your truck into like a ditch, right? Like, <laughs> there, yeah. There's there's some things that are self evident. <laughs> we just talked about this with the biologist Colin Wright. Like you don't have a study saying water is wet, by the way. So like these yeah. self evident truths when we become too like hyper rational and evidence oriented, we can like really lose the forest for the trees. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What you said about the doctor thing, it was, it was very moving. Yeah. And also very surprising when you said it, you know what I mean? Saying the doctor is a fundamentally moral. And then you said, you know, science comes after the morality, but the morality is, yeah. wanting to help the person in front of you. And then I started going back in my mind to, you know, who were the doctors, you know, in history. And, you know, there were the, there were the kind of, the, you would say, the kind of kindly good old man that was in the village yeah. type thing was very often. I thought, wow, that's a whole reframing of what a doctor is. Well, it's, it's do no harm, right? But do yeah. no harm to who? Yeah. To a person. Right. Okay. It's like, like to do no harm, like that has a moral implication. Like you do no harm because you understand that the person in front of you has human dignity, that you want to preserve what's already been created, whether you believe in God or you believe in evolution. You, the role of a doctor is to preserve what's already created. And you speak as if you might be somebody who's religious. I, I presume you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm Jewish and, and um, especially this whole situation. Yeah, I I, I have a, a very strong belief in in God. I don't, but I have to say, what you said is really moving. Actually, really yeah. very beautiful. Yeah, you know, I I really do. I really resonate with that. There's something that feels like fundamentally and intuitively true. And then there's this other part of me that is wondering about, well, how does medicine make progress? Let's say gender affirming care aside, because I think the whole enterprise is really misguided, okay? But when you think about the idea of preserving health and not harming the patient, 
I'm just thinking about if if you look at the history of medical technology and advancement, there have probably been so many kind of crucial points where a procedure is totally experimental, totally new. Dozens of patients are dying on the operating table. And like some doctors who maybe have more sociopathic tendencies or something are like, I'm charging forward and we're going to perfect this procedure. No matter how, like, no matter how many people die. And I was watching, there's some show oh, that yeah. somebody recommended to me. I can't Bad remember surgeon. the name of it now. Bad surgeon. No, not that one, but a show about the medical history, like with okay. how they developed these surgical procedures. And it was brutal and disgusting and gruesome. So I'm just curious, like given your philosophical stance, which I really like, how, where do we make room for, well, you lose a couple, but then in 30 years, you have like this foolproof way to treat so-and-so yeah. condition. I, can I add to Sasha's come? Because I was, I was wrapped up in the poetry for a few <laughs> minutes there and she's shaking me out of it. And it's reminded me of the statistic <laughs> that is often repeated about surgeons, that there's a higher proportion of psychopathy among <laughs> surgeons than, sorry, <laughs> I was right with you for a while, I <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and the, the, there's more psychopath surgeons than any other profession, or so I've heard. Is this a myth? So yeah. Oh no, no. Oh, the, the, the surgeons are we're like a, a such a unique breed because, um, and I, I would say there there are a very high number of surgeons. Well, you know, I, I think there there's this this belief that you have that like um, a a lot of pathological personalities in surgery, but that's right. uh, you know, I think my experience has been that I think it's the opposite really, because when you do surgery, you become humbled every single day. Oh. Like after this podcast, you know, I'm going to go do surgery okay. and um, you know, like as surgeons, because you battle with these pathologies on a daily basis, you gain this, this profound humility for the diseases you treat and then the things that can go wrong. Mm -hmm. So really for the most part, it's very, very rare. Maybe one or two people I can think of that were like really kind of nuts and off the deep end. But, <laughs> and do um, the other surgeons know it? Can they can see? Oh yeah. We've got oh, yeah. an odd one over oh, there. Okay. There was but really, really, it is rare. It's rare to have that. Because very interesting. You said right at the beginning, which is you said, yeah, us surgeons, we tend to circle the wagons. And when you said it, I thought I kind of got it because I'd imagine surgeons are the recipients of a lot of kind of really distressed letters and lawsuits almost from very, you know, uh, deeply grieving people. And so I could see why you would circle the wagons. Um, so it sounds like it's, it's a complicated place to be to be a surgeon. Yeah, because you sacrifice so much to get to the point where we are. And to put yourself in a risk in a position where you're risking your entire career, your profession, like my you know, ability to take care of my family, it's, it's a huge deal. And surgeons will oftentimes make this calculation that, well, you know what, I have to pay the, you know, I have to pay my mortgage, I have to send my kids to college. So it's like, I won't speak out because I have to do that. But it's a miscalculation because they think they're taking care of their family in that sense, but really they're not because if they don't speak up and fight against these things, the world they're delivering their children into is going to be a much more dangerous place. It's going to be much worse for them overall. Right. So it's, you know, 
it's a miscalculation on the part of most surgeons to not try to fight against this thing. You have to try to circle the wagons. Well, I, I, I don't want my question to get lost in the mix, but maybe Sorry. what we'll do, yeah. it's okay. Oh, we'll no, take we'll... this question about the tension between progress and preservation of health. Maybe we'll take that into our listener community if you're okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I guess for now, is there, of course, we'll link to all of the kind of articles and interviews and things that talk about what's going on for you now. Is there anything else that our general audience, you, you want them to and hear? An anything you might recommend, anything you're listening to or watching or reading that you'd like to recommend? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, good. so two things. Um, the, you know, everyone's heard of Hannah Arendt and uh, oh, yeah. the banality of evil. Yeah. Uh, I would say that book is okay. It's not, you know, it's all right. Says the, the surgeon. Her, so um, it's <laughs> Part three of The Origin of Totalitarianism, her book, which is the best. It, it's such an uh, accurate description of what's happening in our society that it's okay. the craziest thing I've ever okay. read. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, you'll read it and you're, you'll just sit there. Your mouth will be open and you'll be like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. She wrote this in like the 1940s, 1950s. But how is she describing what's happening right now? Right. Hmm. So it's don't don't worry about part one and two. Those are kind of like a little overly okay. academic. Yeah. So just go, go to part, part three because yeah, if, if you start part one and two, you'll just you'll stop reading it. You know, okay. but part three is the best part. But then the second part is um, you know uh, the most amazing thing from this whole uh, saga, at least for us, is that the amount of support we've gotten and that um, you know. My wife and I, we've you know, we've sacrificed a huge amount um, to fight this legal battle. And uh, I don't say this to, to gain sympathy because I would say it's like the best investment we've ever made because we have the opportunity to fight against these people who have abused their authority. Yeah. So we're not only playing defense, but we're going on the offense. We have the full intention of holding those people who have abused their authority accountable for what they've done and if anyone wants to support support us they can do it uh gibsongo.com forward slash texas underscore whistleblower and uh and also for any other whistleblowers who are thinking about doing the same thing it's important for them to understand that like if you think your life is going to be destroyed right you're going to lose a lot but whatever you sacrifice you gain back magnitudes greater in the ability to live with dignity but also like there's a million opportunities that open up you never know what that other side will look like but you know it's, i can assure you because i've lived it right it's like the grass really is greener on the other side even if you think you might lose a couple things in the yeah. short term wow. that's a powerful message and we're so glad that more and more whistleblowers like yourself are doing the brave thing. And we're really grateful. We'll, we'll make sure to link everything you just mentioned in the, in the notes. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Aton. Thanks very much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to visit us on Substack by going to widerlenspod.com. There you can join our listener community, access bonus content and resources, plus learn about additional ways to support the show. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.